What happens when you combine the most innovative, eccentric and charismatic leaders, disruptors and founders from tech with the pedigree and history of one of the most established institutions within the City of London? The Searching for Mana podcast will be produced in partnership with the London Stock Exchange. I'm Lloyd Wahead, the host of Searching for Mana. We're going to be interviewing some of the leaders, influencers and disruptors in the tech space, where I'm going to be trying to dig in and find out what's their mana, their superpower, their magic. Max, welcome on to Searching for Mana. Thank you. Yes, happy to be here. Excited to have you on the show with us. Fuller introductions, Max Folding, Silverbird are a stock that a few people have said to me, we absolutely need to get onto the Searching for Mana show. And there's a bunch of reasons. The company's got fantastic traction, is solving a problem that I think is one of the real core solutions that fintech's bringing to financial inclusion and how Silverbird doing this specifically at the moment is focused within FX and really trying to service the segmentation of the market that can struggle to get the right type of partners and support and finances based on quite frankly, archaic methodology. And so I think it's really close and true to the FinTech proposition. So that's why I'm really excited to get Max to explain you know, why this is a passion project, but also why this is a fantastically large opportunity. Max, if you could be so kind, uh, and then you'll, you'll do it a lot better than I just did. So really to start with, for anybody in the audience who doesn't understand Silverbird and, and what your mission is, please. Right. So it's a very simple mission. We servicing exporters and importers around the globe, small, medium ones, not the Nikes of the world, Exporters and importers from Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East and other countries that export to their home countries and they need payments. They need help to receive money from their clients and to send money to their suppliers because they're unloved by traditional banks. And we service guys like exporters rice from Kenya or shoes from Vietnam or electronics from China or furniture from, from Singapore. And for us, it's all the same. It's, it's a very interesting insight that there is a ridiculous number of those guys around the world. There are 6 million of them around the world because for us, uh, they're all the same. They have the same shipment documents, the same customs data, the same supply chains, the same banking documents and the same payment needs. Global banks who are supposed to do the work, they are not interested in those guys, frankly speaking. So I was having a conversation with Citibank uh, recently. They told me that unless there is a 250 million in revenue, they're not interested in exporter or importer. For other banks it's 100 million, but still our sweet spot is between one and 20 million. So we, we work with much smaller customers, although they're not insignificant, they're wholesalers. Yeah, how big is that that segmentation of the market from one to twenty million? Like you know, the big banks drawing a line at hundred or two hundred and fifty. You can understand potentially why that would be the right type of profitable strategy or risk strategy to deploy. But out of curiosity, how much are they missing out on there, and how much can you potentially capitalize on? Right. Since I mentioned earlier, six million merchants around the the globe of this type of revenue, you can calculate roughly using like five or eight million in average, calculated by six, uh, multiplied by six million, and the take rate on the FX, on the FX and, and the transfer fees will be 0.3, 0 0.4%. So it's in hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Yeah. And the reason that that large pool of opportunity is at a bank not being focused on. Just talk us through a little bit more there, Max. We can all probably assume, and you hinted at why it might be, but I know that one of the things, if we look through some of your articles or read your website or, or listen to you on a podcast, is to do with, you know, they'd consider it not worth their while and the companies would be perceived as in a risky category to do business with. 
Yes, exactly. They think of them as risky because for them, it's just no name businesses sending thousands of dollars across the border. But in reality, they have zero economic incentives to change that outlook because for global banks, it's prohibitively expensive to understand those customers. And as you know, in order to support a transaction, especially high value cross border transaction, you need to understand what they call business substance and compliance language. And that requires you to understand the actual business behind the documents, behind the websites, behind the explanations. And that's just very expensive for them to do, at least to do it at scale. And for local banks who actually have relationship with those guys supporting their local operations, it's not a focus at all. They don't have the product because they're focusing on domestic trade or local payments instead. Mm, okay, I see. That makes sense. So then this is behaving more like a local bank where you understand the nuances, but with the ability for them to make those merchant international payments. Okay. And the way we do it, we use cross-border transactional data called bill of lading data to understand yep. our customers at scale. We use a combination of shipments and customs data to build what we call supply chain intelligence on our uh, merchants. And that's how we can KYB them uh, very quickly. So it's a, a unique KYB technology that Silverbird is developing. And that enables a very different customer experience. Fantastic. So no one's going to disagree that this is an, a noble cause, but it would be wonderful if we could perhaps hear from you a nice case study where this has allowed one of your, I don't know, you call them customers or partners, you know, to be able to bank more efficiently because you took the time to understand why they needed this facility. Yeah, they, we call them merchants or customers. So one of the first customers that we got was a British gentleman who moved to Cyprus with his family for some family reasons, tax reasons, etc. And he was supplying African countries with post-Soviet machinery, sourcing this machinery in China and in post-Soviet countries. And, and that's second-hand machinery. And these high-value transactions, each transaction was unique. So there is no one size fits all transaction. And he opened an account in Bank of Cyprus for his Cyprus entity uh, and he tried it genuinely tried it and it didn't work well because they asked him to show up at their branches for every every week with a pile of documents to explain what transaction is about how the relationships going between his suppliers and and his customers and what's his role etc and he just gave up he put his he, he left he kept his account for local operations but he opened an account with silverbird and and the transaction started to uh, appear much more smoothly because we see his history he's do he's been doing that for 20 years so we see this transactional history of his other entities connected to the same ubo we see the history of him supplying the same machinery for the same geographies and we have very comfortable way to support the customer and give a lot of comfort to our banking partners to do the same and and that's the case so our more general our frictionless rate the percentage of transactions goes smoothly through the system is 99 percent so less than one percent of transactions gets delay or somehow question and needs the intervenience from the customers or from customer support team rather than for banks in Cyprus or banks in Dubai, it's 50%. In some place in the world, like Singapore, is a bit more efficient. It's yeah. 70%, but still every yeah. second transaction, one of the three transactions gets delayed. Amazing. Thank you. That's a really useful example. And if we can kind of come up to speed now on how you guys are so efficient, you know, right now in the, the press or everywhere, there's a lot of communication around artificial intelligence, of course. And I know, Max, you, you know, have been from day one aware of how useful that could potentially be to scale this process out. You know, if we go into different organizations, we certainly go back several years. This is very much a, you know, kind of manual underwriting process people would be, be taking. You know, Silverbird is a fintech and uh, technical innovation is happening. But would love to know like, where you are now and also maybe, you know, some of the things you're excited about to automate this as efficiently as possible. Right. 
So today we're using artificial intelligence to standardize and summarize and normalize the data. That's what AI is very good at. So the data that we're working with, this coarse border data is very fragmented. So we collect it from multiple sources, a lot of different companies and governmental portals that we collect this data from. And we standardize and normalize the data, then we build the BI level layer on, on top of that, that we, that we call supply chain intelligence. And we use uh, a lot of AI uh, tools uh, to standardize and normalize the data to make sense of it because it greatly increased what we call match rates, the rates with which we match our customers, actual customers with, with the data that we have. Today, it's 40%. We aspire to bring it to 70% from the first match, meaning that once we onboard the customer without even seeing their counterparties, we already 40% cases, we see everything we need to. We want to be at 70%. And that's the aspiration that we have using AI. Yeah, another, unbelievable. Another application of AI is decision-making. That's the most exciting part. Because today we make only, only very simple decisions automatically, like onboarding low-risk or mid-risk customers. They automatically onboard with us. But high-risk customers where we need to look at more data, ask questions, incorporate these answers into the whole picture or monitor transactions by those uh, make, made by those customers. We still need a human to make those decisions. In the future, we want to automate all that and that's where AI comes into play very nicely because if you take 1,000 decisions that the, that the humans made and then you have 1,000 decisions that the humans should have made, then you automate this, run a regression, and that's that's actually what AI is, is doing. Yeah, so 40% to get to 70%, and then there's this final 30%, and then if we think of what you've just said, I'm sure the audience would be really curious around the order of what's been solved. So what AI right now has solved to a degree is the simple decisions of onboarding is one category, this middle, section going from 40 to 70 is a few things but one of them is you know the human decisions that are a little yep. bit more complex I'd like to know what that is and then that final part like what's that what does it need to solve to maybe not get to 100 percent, but you know you're around 80 or 90 percent. if you could talk us through that yeah it's all about the human is human brain is very very unique in this sense. If you take just one customer and spend a couple of hours on the data, making sense of it, you will be able to do a lot of matches yourself manually. You will look through the same number, uh, transaction patterns, the same names of the companies, slightly different names. Then you look at the UBOs, different surnames of UBOs, making sense of their residential, making sense of their geographies. And you will see that is actually the match here. Let's let's ask for more information. Let's incorporate this information to analysis, run the analysis one more time, and then you arrive at this at this match that okay, we're dealing with this kind of customer, and here's the counterparty. But you can't sit down with every customer for two or three hours and do that, and then do it over time. Once they start transacting, do it the same with the counterparties. So that's where we, you need just to teach your AI system to do the same kind of thinking. And that's what that's what ChatGPT can, can do or will be able to do very soon. And that's what excites us a lot. And that's yeah. how you move without even increasing the data coverage. You move from this 40% to 70%. That's what, that's what our data team is inspired to do. Yeah, it's so exciting, isn't it? And it's, you know, it's these things in organizations that you can be focused on a particular market that you're servicing, but sometimes what's being built behind that as a decision system can become transcendent to a bunch of other solutions as well. It's really this moment that we find ourselves in with, with AI, where there's a genuine, huge ability for people to take right. these, these language models. And, and so you could come up with a, a solution here where potentially if we went back to those banks and they'd previously said, 
well, why would we come down to this segmentation? Not that there's a large total market there, but right now it would take too much time for us to do that. You go fix that whole segmentation situation and then what is it they want? Do they want the organization or do they want the technology or do they want the data? And I'm, I'm really excited about the next seven years and seeing how that pans out. I wonder what you're thinking strategically there is. Right, strategically, I think everybody agrees who invests in FinTech or in KY, any kind of KYB technology, KYC technology, that in compliance in particular, AI is very applicable. Yeah. So it's one of the ma major application to AI actually compliance. And why it's important, even for people who mm, uh, who has nothing have nothing to do with banking apart from being a customer, because and that's a very important insight that I I actually didn't know before I started fin being a fintech entrepreneur four years ago, that whoever com controls compliance controls the customer experience. Mm. I I didn't know that. I thought that compliance is sort of something that is there. To, to struggle through and you need and you just you just have to deal with it but the nice things about banking is actually on the other side of things like product ability to pay ability to draw a loan but actually compliance is very exciting because we can't avoid it anyway you know the, the every five years every year compliance becomes stricter and stricter and that's the reason for that because the banking technology becomes more complex and there is ability to trick, uh, ability to trick the system, and and that drives the compliance uh, complexity as well, uh, and that's why it becomes more stricter. But whoever controls compliance controls the customer experience because compliance can ruin everything, yeah. and it does, and it does. <laughs> so ability to solve that, ability to prevent compliance from ruining the good customer experiences, all these nice interfaces and services that we are building on the customer facing side is actually the key for any B2B banking, I, I, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come back in the final part of the show to you being able to project out what opportunity, therefore, that might lend to a Silverbird or others who've taken that approach, which I'm excited about. But now, I'd like to just dig into a couple more things, and then I think we've set the scene nicely in the now, and then we'll go back into your background, Max, and, you know, excited to do that. Max is a serial entrepreneur. So just to finish the picture of where you are now, just anything on scale, really. So if we think about the organization, any type of metrics there it would be useful to understand. Yes, so we launched the service less than two years ago. In November 2021, we are now talking in October 2023. September, we closed at 5.3 million in ARR, which is annualized revenue run rate. Uh, we are very profitable in terms of gross profit. We are not profitable in terms of being break-even yet, but our gross profit is over 80% and repeat quite stably. So, and we growing for year, four times year over year. So a year ago, we were four times smaller than we are now. So we want to be at least three times bigger in a year from now when we talk next time in October 2024. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, like, so congratulations on that. Do you see as, because everybody has them, I believe it's not just companies, but the world is navigating through and around obstacles. What do you see as the biggest challenge for you guys so that, you know, next year, when we're talking, those metrics have done that again. What's the challenge? What's the obstacle? Yeah, the main obstacle, obviously, is 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 to create product fast enough, because your growth, it's not the game. As I'm an e-commerce entrepreneur in in my past, e-commerce is not a product-driven business. You just you just build an awesome marketing and a great selection of product and that's it that's e-commerce product and market selection mm -hmm. and and uh, and 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 digital marketing so you need traffic and you need selection of goods and the magic happens here is very different you need to build pro actual product and the product is it takes time to build it takes a lot of time to build and 
for us to be able to introduce a next generation of product, because today we're just payment company, we have aspiration to introduce trade finance and letter of credit and forward contracts next year to become this super app for international merchants to transact, to become this one-stop shop for exporters and importers around the globe. And that's the inspiration and the challenge at the same time. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Uh, or, you know, the bigger the upside, then the more of those obstacles. So if you could now, Max, be so kind to really go back as far as possible to set the scene of your origin story so the audience can understand right at the beginning some of the influences and background that you have, please. Yep. I'm a Drew, I'm Jewish Russian. I grew up in, in Moscow. I lived in the country until 2014. I spent two years at Stanford at the GSB in business school, where I started my previous company called Wikimart, the eBay of Russia, which I built to become one of the largest e-commerce players in the country. And then I sold it when Crimea happened and moved to Asia, helping eBay merchants from China serve online customers in Eastern Europe, where in, in Asia I run a joint venture with eBay that was building and managing cross-border fulfillment platform. We were solving logistics, we were solving content, marketing, and payments. And that's how I ran into this B2B cross-border payment problem, because I realized that unless you're $100 million plus corporation, there is no bank for you, essentially. And I thought how all those small and medium exporters that I've been working for many years with, how they actually bank. And I, I learned that they, that's a huge problem and huge pain for them because when you are a wholesaler and they are all wholesalers, what the main transactions for you is actually cross-border, high-level cross-border transactions, high-value cross-border transactions, which connects to your container that needs to... To ship from from the port and the, if transaction is delayed the container doesn't ship your supply chain stops and your business stops so that's that's really a problem and i started digging into that back then i knew what the solution might be but it was 2016-17 i didn't know about new banking back then revolut was raising their first rounds monza was raising their first round so and that was always b2c not b2b anyway yeah so by 2018, I learned about the, this new model called new banks, and I thought that that's probably uh, what I want to build. That's precisely actually what I want to build for those small medium exporters, because there are new licenses called EMI licenses, etc., that you can acquire and start building the business. And and I moved to London four years ago with my family. We used to live in Spain after that, and I lived to, I moved to London with my family, and we, I started the business here, and we launched it, as I said, less than two years ago. That's and, and there's a few things that I'd like to, to dig into, because, you know, as mentioned, you, you clearly have spotted a couple of big trends, and I want to understand how you go about that. But just before that, um, it, it would be rude of me not to ask, you know, how has London treated you as a founder? Have you found the ecosystem to be good, me mediocre or terrible? No, it's very good. I actually find it very, I found it very good. My London story is, 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 is very, very exciting because, uh, first of all, I needed a visa, right? So I was, I, I was, now I am Israeli citizen, but back then I was Russian citizen and even Israeli citizen, we need a visa. So to work in the country, and I applied. It was exceptional talent visa back then. Now it, it's called global talent. And I applied and received this exceptional talent visa. I, I told them the truth in my essays that in my statement that I was going to build a company for exporters and importers, a new bank, apply for the license, etc. And then it was three years after when I was uh, getting my ILR. I just repeated that saying in the past sense that I had tense in the past tense that I actually did all that. And yeah, that, so that's the case when I actually did what I, I wrote in this statement. So, and, and, and London helped me a lot. So for instance, level 39 was a good place to start with. And we, we still have membership there. We still uh, have an office in Canary Wharf. And, you know, 
I know that you always have to ground yourself, but, you know, would you see a potential event as, you know, kind of going back into the ecosystem by listing to the public on the London Stock Exchange at any point? Oh, I don't know about that. I don't think that far. I don't think that far. <laughs> Entrepreneurs, they typically focus on the, it's investors who focus on those things. And entrepreneurs focus on the actual building. And we enjoy the building. When when do you start thinking about London Stock Exchange or other, other exchange? Uh, it's over already, right? So we are sort of coming to the end of the of the journey, and that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll every year tap in on that point. I think about that. So it'd be it'd be interesting to understand when you when you founded the first company, like to if you could set the scene there because it, it it obviously blew up and this was your first experience of something that went absolutely massive how did that happen did you do that on your own did you do that with another founder like tell us about the story there yeah, it was a co-founder it was interesting actually we were we were both students in at the gsb at stanford and there's a guy there's a guy came to our to campus with a lecture how he made his company company public the company name was Mercado Libre which is free market in in, in in Spanish and he was doing he was making it public in 2007 and the he came 2008 to campus to tell us about that and he was G's beer as well and he was telling us that the time when he they started in 1999 the internet penetration not the e-commerce penetration, but the internet penetration in America was 1.5%. And I thought, wow, if he could do something like that, eBay of Latin America called Mercado Libre, with this low internet penetration, they were re, re, literally teaching people to use computers, to switch, to turn on computers and how to actually sell on computers and that's what i thought very telling because russia back then was the only large place in the world that didn't have a, a leading marketplace online marketplace and that's what we with this sort of um, this notion that we started with and then we raised a lot of money although it was 2009 not a good year for raising money but we still raised first million then another five and another seven we raised like 50 million total and back then and uh we would build this company to become a one billion dollar company because the time we we were selling it it was 250 million in gmv and growing 70 percent year over year but the crimea happened the foreign investors wanted out of the country so we had to sell to the local buyers we got the money back but it wasn't sort of the great exit i would i would say the operational experience was really good it yeah. was 450 people in the company back then and 10,000 merchants at the platform but financially we got some money but it wasn't that that big of a success i would say because of yeah. the uh, something yeah, that i mean today with ukraine it was a small much smaller scale but still in terms of direct foreign direct investments it was the same yeah and as you said earlier, we're in October 2023, and unfortunately, there's more unrest across the globe right now, particularly, and obviously something that's, I'm assuming, something you're quite in the detail in this week. You know, it's up to you if you want to, if you want to talk, talk to that. Yeah, it's madness that's going on, because uh, I'm, a, I'm a former citizen of Russia, my father still lives there, I'm a citizen of Israel, my mom lives there. So I two countries where <laughs> where the main the main distress is and actually is actually happening, I have direct involvement with. And yeah. and that's that's making me very sad. And I obviously stand with Israel. People people are not only scared, they are they are terrified for the scale of of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well the it's affecting a lot of people, but you clearly are in a in a doubly distressing phase. So you know, you know, 
there's nothing that's easy to say, but so, sorry about the the impact and you know fingers crossed that we will get through it as smoothly as possible. I mean, it's affecting the everything, but the startup landscape a lot because both those nations are actually very technically innovate, innovative. Yes. So I think I've got a disproportionate amount of people I know who are affected by it. But, you know, I suppose the only comfort there is that it's also the same type of builders who come up with solutions. And I've seen some of that already quite nicely happen in the Ukraine-Russia situation. So I'm sure right. that's going to be the same with Israel if, you you know, it's a it's a tech nation. So, yeah. It's a very tech nation. It's a very tech nation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, I understand that that was frustrating. However, you got to experience successfully operating that organization from founding to huge scale with very successful metrics. And therefore, you're in a position now you can utilize all of those lessons with Silverbird, which, you know, as we've seen, is you know much more backable when founders have been there, done it, learned and experienced. Has that been your experience? Have you coming into this one kind of, do you feel like, okay, things are going quick or I already can see your head down the track. It's a, as you said, it's a, there's almost three prongs to this in preference of the previous one being two in terms of challenge. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to know if that's the case or actually you're like, this is just as hard. <laughs> yes, yes and no. It's yeah. actually interesting. Uh, I was thinking about that when I was starting, I was thinking, yeah, okay. I'm a second time student here, so I know how to do my homework. I will, I will just go and do it. I know what's what's going to be in this stage, this stage, that stage. And then I learned that although I'm a second time student and I do know how to do my homework, the major is different. It's like you used to learn math and you're good at math, but but you now studying English literature. And a lot of things that you do about know about math is co completely irrelevant to English literature, apart from just your general approach that you need to wake up early and do your homework and 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 go to the uh, to seminars, etc. So this sort of you, you're still going through a tremendous learning curve. Yeah, of course, of course. But I, I think that is right. I think there's an organization that you're managing. And then I think there's a market opportunity. So the major has changed, but the the habits yeah, it has changed, but still still second time student. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like it's a different racing track, but I know how to drive the car. But if the racing track's much harder, then it will be harder. That's the analogy. <laughs> right, right. That's um... Um, so. Max, we'll now go into the um, quick bar mana round. I'll ask several questions, which we ask on every show. It's, it's really interesting to hear to the same question, everybody's nuances. Feel free to be as brief or elaborate as much to each question as you'd like, okay? So ultimately, we'll be looking to find out what your mana is. So for anybody who doesn't know, it's your magic, it's your superpower. You know, you can think of it as in gaming, there's your power in your life. And then your mana is your superpower. It could be that you can cast magic spells, you can fly, you're incredibly strong, etc. But we'll get there after a few questions. So if you could have the front cover of your preferred favorite publication, it might be The Economist, it could be the FT, whatever it is to you, what would be the message that you'd put on the front cover? I would say the world is changing because it's it's always is, and I somehow think about the the economist. I love it. That's great. The world is changing. On the economist, I'd 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 want to read that because it always is. Yeah. Um, at the moment, and I mean this in a business context because I don't want to use this question for for other. What's keeping you up at night? And I always answer because uh, VCs usually ask these questions. What keeps you up at night? Everything is fine, but what keeps you up at night? But in my answer is almost always is the team because that's the frank answer for any entrepreneur. Despite the team being very good and cohesive and work together, 
you still think about the issues they have, the the things they share, the motivation they have, the how they work with each other. Because that if you have motivated, cohesive, and and well organized team working together, everything else is everything else follows. So there is nothing to worry about. So the team is the main thing. Well, I could not agree with you more. Working across a number of organizations through the Mana core business, um, where you get very close to partnering with with uh, leaders or founders, you know, that's where a lot of the walks around the parks are happening <laughs> because it's the feeling of responsibility to make sure that, you know, this is going to be successful. They're going to have a great opportunity and uh, people also diverse that that is, you know, in early stage businesses, very, very hard to get that right. J just right. And, 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 and almost more so when you're blitz scale successful, actually, because more people are colliding into yeah. the opportunity. Yes. So yeah, I completely, completely understand that. That's a great one. And with, we could do another show on, on that. That's a whole other separate show mm -hmm. uh, about the culture. You've got a lot of weight on your shoulders as the leader here. It's a big vision. What are you doing when you go into a day? And I know also you're a family man. Um, when you're going into a day to make sure you're, you're set up to you know, make the right decisions, do the right work. What type of habit or mantra is there that sets you up for the day? Right. I have an answer to that because that's what I de have developed for, for a number of years. I usually start my day with two and a half hours of deep work. Nice. It's something that I learned from writers uh, because you know that writers, very, even very prolific ones, one, like Stephen King, for instance, or somebody like who writes four books a year, uh, they typically don't write more than two or three hours per day. What do they do on the other, other, other time, uh, the rest of the day? I don't know, but <laughs> I think they think, research, etc. But the actual writing happens, whatever your brain is the main, mostly fresh. And for me, it's two and a half hours early in the morning before family wakes up, before it's increasingly hot nowadays because my kids going to school and there's pretty early, but uh, still that's what I think the main thing that needs to your day to start with is to before you look at the first email before you speak a first word with your family member you need to complete as much deep work as possible and maximum that i could it's two and a half hours and that's the main thing for me to happen today yeah gosh that's fantastic advice i know that is just so much harder than it sounds when you have family and you know emails coming in but the discipline not everyone's the same but the discipline of that's when your creative and flow work works best so many people i know you just get yourself to that desk and do the one and a half two hours two and a half hours and that habit of doing that four or five days a week just builds on top on top of itself it's almost all, all you need to do but it, it's it, it's challenging you need to get up early and then it's slightly different question it sounds the same but it's not is there a you know a passage in a book or a philosophy or an affirmation or a mantra that keeps you ambitious motivated that you go back to regularly yes i when it was it was hard time for me few years ago when I sold my company and I sort of didn't have um, things to do and it's I thought about that as entrepreneur without without the business is like is like samurai without without the service it's they called Ronin right and they're not very happy people some of them become dangerous people precisely because of that. And I, I was, I started thinking about, I started reading a lot of philosophy back then. I'm still coming back to that. And it's Stoics philosophy. 
Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, all those. And that's what, that's what I think gave me a lot of strength and a lot of depth. Yeah, I love it. Some really good individuals and we can include in the show notes, any of those, you know, books that you particularly recommend to any audience or entrepreneurs who are listening. Final one before the main question. I like to ask everybody, because I like snowball sampling, who would you recommend to come on the Searching for Mana show? You know, is there somebody who you think would be super interesting or the audience would be, they might not even know who they are, but from having worked or known about them, you're like, that'd be an amazing guest. For you. For you, sure. Yep. Let me think. Do you invite investors or entrepreneurs only? No, we've, we've had professors, we've had authors, always trying to look for the same theme. So the professor had wrote a book and I teach us at Harvard as well uh-huh. uh, about companies who have failed and what trends we can, we can learn from that. And there's a, there's a much bigger sample there. Uh, and then uh, we, we've had um, uh, politicians, but when the politicians interested in fintech and so on and so forth. So yeah, any, any recommendation? Yeah, so I would recommend, I don't know whether mm-hmm. it takes the invite, but I recommend uh, Fred Destian, uh, okay. yeah. the guy from Stride. He's super elaborative, much more than I am, and he speaks. You give him that much context, that's his main thre- uh, strength. You give, you give him much that much context, and you will give you that big picture. So <laughs> that's Fred. Yeah, amazing. I mean, we, we always ask out of curiosity, then the audience can go find other shows they've done, but we'll, we'll see if he's interested in this one. So, your mana. Max, what would you say your mana is? It's your superpower, your magic. What do you think is, I'll give you some examples. You know, people say resilience. You know what? Let me answer the following. I was increasingly frustrated during my uh, childhood and then student time. Then I wasn't good at, Math. I wasn't brilliant at math. I was good at math, but I wasn't brilliant at math. At the same time, I had a lot of people who were much better than me in math, but I, I was sort of not average, but above average, but not 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 just brilliant. The same thing with writing. I was really good at uh, at writing, but wasn't brilliant at writing. So I wasn't a professional writer or something like that. I could write and still can quite quite nicely, but it's it's not something that I would say I top zero point one percent in the world, and then I realized early late in the year in my years when I was twenty something that actually that not that many people who can do both very good math and very good writing all the same at the time. That's why I think a zero point one percent. If you combine those two skills, and that's what you need to actually to start and manage businesses because you need to be able to do modeling, mathematical things and do pricing and do all the math thinking. But at the same time, you do need to communicate. And I think the communication is actually the most important part of the business. So I don't know, have I answered the question? So, but that's... Yeah, I, I, I love it. I always, I mean, on the show, I just ask, what the mana is but you know in our business we try we try and ask what a major and a minor business is because you have very little context with just one you know 50 percent of people say they're resilient but those 50 percent are all very different <laughs> but if you hear that somebody's resilient with create creativity you can start to think okay they're on this side or this part of the matrix and then of course you can go in deeper but that's 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 interesting i'm reading a book at the moment which is uh, a fiction I've allowed myself the luxury of not reading a biography or a business book. And okay. the, the, the character in it is a maths professor, but a novelist. And what I can't remember what the title is, but what he manages to do with that skill set is there's somebody, this is a very famous book, so p- this people might recollect if you want to say, somebody, a young lady has, has written this, 
really unbelievable story. But the story's not becoming very popular because it's not written in a way that's technically at the standard that you would expect, you know, mm-hmm. a professional writer to be able to to do. Because actually writing a story has a lot of logic to it. But the yeah. story is a wonderful one to tell. So he uses his maths brain and his ability to write well and then turns this into, you know, a sensational book. And so if you think about that, and as you put it, it's so true, isn't it? You know, I mean, if you're the best mathematician, okay, well, you're going to be the best mathematician or specialist, you know, in something to do with data or something parallel to that. You're a wonderful, wonderful writer. Then, you know, you're going to be an editor or a, a novelist. But having very good combination of those two is so, so powerful for, for business. I wonder how you've, you know, thought about that as well with, I suppose, your 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 family and your kids as you've seen them coming through, knowing that that combination is good. You think in education that that mana for you has been so useful that you encourage, you know, don't just go and be a specialist in one subject. Actually, you've got to, you've got to have both of these. How have you looked at that? In education, is a different dimension. In education, you need to build a fundament, uh, f- foundation for something. You, ob- you obviously you need to find where your kid. And I'm talking. I'm I'm a father of five kids, so that's why I'm talking so like <laughs> confident because I that's do, an experience. I, yeah, yeah, I do. I do have some experience with fathering. Right. So you need to find where the the kids main main not strength even but what they love what they love because your job as a parent is to discover what your kids love they can't do it unfortunately themselves until they're 20 and that's too late Uh, and that's a trick they would tell you all kinds of stories but you won't believe them because because you will you know better than that's the mistakes that young people usually make you need to uh, help them find what they love and and then build a foundation on top of that. They, you need to so, be. And, and is it is a method that you've used there, Max? Is, so they need to have as many experiences as possible. Right, right, right. Because that's home, right? Remember, Gil, uh, this lady who wrote this book, Eat, Pray, Love, right? Le- Elizabeth Gilbert. So she 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 once said in her uh, YouTube in TED Talk actually that this is your home things that you love and you need to you need to build this home for yourself and as a parent you need to help your kid to build this home for them yeah i love that and i i completely agree but it's another trend isn't it very successful entrepreneurs having lots and lots of children so i mean this is the one thing i might need to work on i've only got one at the moment (laughs) (laughs) i've got time there's there's some time okay Thanks for that, Max. Look, I've taken a lot of your very precious time. I really appreciate it. But I'd like to give you the platform to finish with. You you did mention in brief that, you know, what hopefully comes now is the super app opportunity. But if you want to really set the scene for, you know, Silverbird, the Hollywood version, please, please do. Yes. So we will become a prime provider for all things banking for cross-border merchants, exporters and importers around the globe. And the magic will start happening when we reach the scale when both sides of the transactions will, will be on the on Silverbird platform and the transactions will become frictionless, completely frictionless and instant. And instant transactions are a game changer because our business has a network effect. Every exporter and importer in the world is somebody's else's supply chain. They all work in the supply chains. And they they send money and receive money from each other, and the instant transactions between them, like instant transactions between India and Africa, or instant transactions between Europe and China, is a game changer. And the more supply chains we cover, the more instant transactions we can offer, the more customers we can attract, and the more supply chains we cover. So that's a flywheel, Silverbird flywheel. And that's what excites me about this company. And that's how we built a $10 billion company. Yeah. And, and it's not that it's not with lots of, you know, incredibly hard, challenging work along the path. But it is very clear to me that 
a company could be more than a 10 billion company in this yes, market. Yes, I'm modest. I'm being modest here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, it, it, it could be absolutely huge. And, and not all markets do provide that opportunity. So I suppose the thing that also be nice to understand is where are you in the competitive landscape of who else has got any type of traction here? And what's the point where, you know, as a, as a Buffett and all your VC friends would say, there's some type of moat that protects that you're going to take as much of that opportunity as possible, I wonder. Yeah. Good questions. First of all, the exciting part that we are the only fintech that's focusing on international trade customers. I would know if that wasn't a fa uh, the fact. I would know that for sure. And another fact that 80% of our merchants or more haven't seen a fintech in their life. So they we, we take them away from local banks. We compete with local banks. Banks of Dubai, banks of Cyprus, banks of Singapore, banks of Vietnam, banks of Turkey, that's where we take them from. And that's very exciting. And to to second point of your of your question, where we built our defensibility, because I believe that nobody is, is actually born with defensibility. You need to build the defensibility. We build it in, in our ability to make sense of the transactional data in KYB and, and enable this customer experience at scale. We built it in our customer-facing interface tailored to the needs of cross-border trade merchants. And one word, we build defensibility. Our defensibility stems from the fact that we are very vertically focused. We only touch physical goods merchants in international trade. And everything goes from there. Love it. Max, CEO, founder, Silverbird. Congratulations on the traction so far. Lots to Thank do. You. Lots, yes. lots to do, lots to build, but uh, super, super exciting. We will, we will catch up soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Love it. That was great. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Future of Work podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please leave a like and a review and subscribe to our iTunes channel to stay up to date with the newest content. Find us on social media at Searching for Mana. Tell us who you want next on the show. Thanks again and see you next time.